How's everybody doing? Good. Good. All right. I like a little audience participation, so I'm probably going to call on you a few times during this message. So the first thing is, is who in here is familiar with the story, The Emperor's New Clothes? Pretty much everybody, for the most part. So basically what you have in The Emperor's New Clothes is you have this very vain emperor. He's not a good emperor. Uh, There was... Uh, a, a saying they had about him. Instead of being in his chambers doing kingly duties, they said the emperor is in his wardrobe because he was most concerned, of course, with the way that he looked, with his outward appearance. So one day into ta- rolls into town two swindlers who know this about him, and they go on to tell him this grand story about the magical garment that they can weave for him and that the only people that can see it are people who are worthy of their posts or who are not fools, Right? All the while they're tricking him and he stands one day before the mirror and he's naked but he doesn't want to believe it and no one else is brave enough to tell him. He is deceived. He is deceived. And then one day a little boy as he's walking through the parade says, hey, he's naked. And then everybody laughs at him and he realizes, right? Have you ever had something wrong with you that you maybe weren't aware of or no one told you about before? When I think about that, I have a few things that come to mind. Uh, The first one is, uh, I had this friend in high school. Uh, He thought of himself as God's gift to the ladies. You may be familiar with these types of people. So one day we were down at Grand Haven and we were at the beach and uh, he saw some girls. And so he kind of came up and was like, hey, watch this. Well, what we didn't tell him was that he had something on his face. Everyone look closely. When I say he had something on his face... I mean, he had something on his face, right? So we all sat back and said, oh, please show us your skills, right? So he walks on down over to these girls, and you can just see them kind of like, you know, like, okay, we got to go. And he came back. He's like, I don't know what happened. Or like, well, you got a booger. So, <laughs> and then we just laughed at him, you know, right? And he was like, you guys should have told me. Uh, but he needed the humbling, right? So another time comes to mind uh, when I went to Grace Bible College here in town as an undergraduate. I had, when I first started preaching, I had like three sermons, you know, and I would travel around to different churches and I would preach sermons, you know, one of the three that I had. And I remember one time I went to go preach at this church and I was up there impassioned and preaching the gospel and, you know, I think they're with me here. And I went down to, afterwards, uh, one of the elders came up to me and I said, well, do you think that the, the congregation received the message well? And and he said, uh, your fly's down. So I was like, oh, no. You know, like, so that was obviously quite embarrassing. You know, we've all had these types of things uh, happen to us before. You know, sometimes they're funny, but other times they're very serious, right? We can have something um, wrong with us, and it can be a very serious thing. A few years ago, one of my best friends from college uh, won a contest, uh, and we were both big uh, sports fans, and we got to go to the Final Four down in Indianapolis. And I remember uh, I was in the hotel room, and he was kind of in front of the mirror, you know, making sure his shirt looked right and everything. And I remember looking at his legs, and I was looking, and I, one calf was normal size, and his other calf muscle was exceptionally large, like almost twice as big uh, as it should be compared to the other. And I said, Mike, do you realize that one of your calf muscles is like twice the size of the other one? And he was like, I guess I noticed it was a little big, but I didn't really realize how big. Well, it turns out that what he had was a very, very deadly form of cancer. Uh, It's called uh, uh, sarcoma, right? And it's just a terrible, terrible cancer in the muscle tissue, right? And it was a serious, serious thing. He was unaware of it. 
No one had really said anything to him, you know, and, and it was a serious, serious problem. But even more serious than that would be this. What if we had something wrong with us spiritually, but we were unaware of it? And not only that, what if we were unaware of it and no one was willing to tell us? Or no one told us, or when they told us, they told us when it was too late. Well, this morning what we're going to do is we're going to have an opportunity, kind of like the emperor from the emperor's new clothes. We're going to stand before God's word like a mirror. We're going to have an opportunity to look at ourselves and to see our spiritual condition truthfully, to see if we are truly clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And the reason that this is so important is because of the consequences. You see, the first scenario I painted with my friend who went to talk to the girl, yeah, he got embarrassed and we messed with him and things like that. But eventually he got married, you know, things turned out fine. Or me, you know, <laughs> I was pretty embarrassed to have preached with my fly down. But by God's grace, here I am, you know. Uh, I checked with Olson before I got up here to make sure everything was good, all right. You know, but that third scenario, the consequences were much more serious. And, you know, uh, it was an honor, but also very sad because a few years ago I did my friend Mike's funeral, you know, and uh, that cancer ended up taking him. But even more so, significantly more so, are the consequences if we're spiritually blind, if we have a spiritual condition and are unaware of it. Because the consequences for being spiritually unaware or spiritually blind or spiritually oblivious to your own state is the difference between spending an eternity with Christ in heaven or eternity separated from God in hell. So if you will, take out your Bibles. And we're going to be looking today at Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to start in verse 21. This is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, all right? And in, your, in the Bible that the church provides, that's page 686, page 686. We're going to be looking at Matthew 7, verse 21. And we're going to be standing in front of God's mirror, His Word, to examine our lives. Now before we begin, I'd like to explain for just a brief moment about the section of Scripture. The Sermon on the Mount is what it's called. I believe that the Sermon on the Mount, while taken with the rest of Scripture, becomes the most powerful and most potent thing in the Bible. It can be argued that it's the most important section of Scripture altogether. Here's how I would describe the Sermon on the Mount. It is without a doubt the most famous sermon that Jesus Christ ever preached. And as we just sang, as Jesus Christ is our cornerstone, I believe that this sermon stands in a category of its own. It's important. And not only that, but when you listen to a sermon, it's always important to listen to the first thing and the last thing that someone says. And today, we're going to do exactly that. We're going to take the first thing and the last thing from the Sermon on the Mount to examine our lives, to see where we stand. So this is utterly important, if not one of the most important passages in all of Scripture. So is everybody with me? Hold on, we got to do that better this time. All right, so, so is everybody with me? Yes. All right. That's the answer I like to hear. All right. We're going to start with Matthew 7, 21. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, right here, our Lord Jesus 
introduces us to the first type of spiritually oblivious person. Notice that Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, or who says Jesus' name, or I'm with Jesus, or yeah, I'm a Christian. Not everyone who says that enters the kingdom of heaven. But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So first things first. Jesus is not speaking to irreligious, atheistic, agnostic people here. He is speaking directly to and about religious people, people who say, Lord, Lord. He's specifically addressing even many of us here. See, these people are people who claim to be Christians by their lip service. They say, I'm with Jesus. But then Jesus says about them, I don't, I don't know you. I don't know you. So for me, this is frightening. And it makes me ask the question, why do these religious people who claim Jesus as their God not gain entrance into heaven? Well, we're going to define these into two groups of people. All right? So the first group of person is defined as such. Person one is a religious person who claims Jesus but has no works, fruit, or evidence to back up their claim. See, Jesus says, if you look in your text, not all enter, but those who do the will of my Father. So listen very closely. What Jesus is saying is this. I don't care what you say about your faith. I don't care what you say about your standing with God if there is no evidence to back it up. So I want to ask you this. What lulls a religious person like into this type of deception? What is it that takes a religious person and lulls them to sleep in this type of deception? Well, first of all, it's this. There's many, many professed Christians and many, many true Christians that hold to what I would call a false doctrine of assurance. Now, there is a way you can be assured of your salvation. It's called the assurance of salvation. But the majority of people that I know hold to a false view of the assurance of salvation. Often it's because a person who witnessed to them told them that all they have to do is say these words, raise your hand, walk down the aisle, and then never doubt what God has done for you. I've even heard it said that to doubt their salvation would be to doubt God's word and to doubt God's integrity. Unfortunately, many evangelists, many pastors, and many other people have tried to certify other human beings' uh, salvation apart from the Holy Spirit. But let me make this very clear. Salvation is of the Lord. We did not die on the cross. We cannot give salvation. And we cannot assure anyone of salvation. That is the Lord and the Lord alone's duty. But what so many people do is they say, oh, you're saved. Don't you ever worry about it. Oh, you're saved. Don't you ever worry about it. But as a human being, we have no right to assure something that we cannot be sure of ourselves. God and God alone retains the right to grant a person the assurance of salvation. I want to look at it this way. Now, we live in a very, very religious area, okay? Grand Rapids. 
Many people uh, refer to Grand Rapids as Little Jerusalem. I don't know if you knew that or not. We have four of the biggest uh, Christian publishers in the world here. We have uh, numerous seminaries and Bible colleges. We have about seven megachurches. This is a religious place. Many of the people who founded these communities were Reformed, good Dutch Bible-believing people, right? (laughs) This is a very Christian-y area. And I don't know if you've noticed... But everybody claims to be a Christian. See, where I'm from in Muskegon, like if you don't go to church and you're not like a Christian and you're not really into God and someone says, are you a Christian? You're like, no. In Grand Rapids, people will be like, are you a Christian? And they'll be like, yes. Right? Of course I am. My grandma was a Christian. I got baptized when I was a kid. Whatever it might be. We live in a very religious place. Many of the people who say that are saved But we know scripturally and we know from the evidence that many of them may not be. I used to be one of those people. When I was six years old, I grew up in a good Bible-believing home. I knelt by the side of my mother's bed and I asked Jesus into my heart, right? If you asked anyone who knew me other than my mom (laughs) if I was a Christian between the ages of, say, 12 and 21, they'd be like, no. Like, Aaron, Aaron Bolduke? When I got engaged to my wife, she worked at a bank in our local community in Muskegon, and she was like, yeah, my husband or my, 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 my fiancé, Aaron, yeah, we're going to go to Bible school together. And they're like, Aaron who? Aaron Bolduke. And like, this person was like, who? Aaron. She made, the lady at the bank made my wife get a yearbook and like, be like, no, this is him, actually him. Right? Because everyone who would have known me was like, no, that guy's not a Christian. No way. There was no evidence. You know, it frightens me when I look back on my life because when I look back through those years, the very, very best answer that I could give myself about whether or not I was truly saved was, I don't know. I don't know. Quite frankly, that answer's not good enough. That answer's not good enough. Let me ask you this. Are you one of those people? Are you one of the people that Jesus is talking about in verse 21? Are you one of those people who was like I was when I was a teenager? Are you a lip service Christian? You offer God your lips, but nothing else? Yeah, Jesus, sure, cool. Let's go do sin. Let's go live for the world. Let's go chase what the world has. Man, Jesus too. That's what Jesus is talking about. Because if that's you, the very, very, very best answer that you can get on whether or not you're a Christian is, I hope so, maybe, I don't know. And you have to ask yourself, is that the place that you want to be spiritually? Because Jesus is saying to you, many people will show up on my front door saying, yeah, Jesus, you know me. I'm with you, Jesus. Uh, You know, I said the prayer. I went to church. I went to Sunday school. I went to United. I did all the stuff. And Jesus is like, I'm looking over your file here, but I don't really see any evidence that you're a Christian. You love sin. You never obeyed my teachings. You never tell anyone about me. You never took up your cross. You never died to yourself. And they'll respond, but Jesus, but Lord, Lord, I did. I raised my hand. I said the prayer. I did it all. And Jesus will look at them and he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Depart from me. I never knew you. See, many of us have a false understanding of salvation. Because what we've done in the evangelical church in America is we've taken the gospel and we've shaped it differently and we've softened it a little bit to make it more palatable and to make it easier so more people will raise their hands, so more people will come down the aisle. 
But the reality is, is that many of those people who do are false. They're not true. Take the sinner's prayer, for example. You guys know the sinner's prayer. It's usually along the lines of, you know, if, hey, you want to go to heaven? If you do, you want to be sure, you know, raise your, ask Jesus in your heart. And then if you do that, raise your hand and then you're, you're saved, right? Anyone know where that's found in the scriptures? It's not. It's not in the Bible. See, nowhere in the Bible does it ever say, hey, being a Christian is easy and all you have to do is say these magic words. You're in. Said, I, said, I said the words. I did it. When we were down in Chicago witnessing the people, I was talking to a guy who's stone cold drunk in the middle of a park, living on the streets doing you know what. And he's like, no, I said it, man. I said the prayer. I'm good. I'm good. I said the words. And he was deceived to think that he said some magical words that were going to save him. But nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that. Jesus says, follow me. See, everywhere we look in the Bible, the call of salvation isn't say these magic words. It's believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen God, and repent of your sins and follow him totally. Jesus Christ died for us, so we live for him. His death for my life. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ, not magic words. It's an exchange. Your death, God, my life. Your death, my life. This is a wake-up call. This is a wake-up call for many of us in this room today. I've been doing evangelism in this city for five or six years, and I will tell you right now, 80% of the people I lead to Christ thought they were saved before we talked. It is an epidemic in the evangelical church of false Christians, not true believers. People who said the magic words never died to themselves, love their sin, and chase the world instead of God. And if you think you can get into heaven with nothing more than an empty profession of faith, you are in grave danger, and you may be walking down the spiritual broad way. And spiritual Broadway leads to hell. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse, thir verse 13, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many, many enter through it. The narrow gate, the true gate, the true path of Christ is for those who profess faith in Christ and give him their lives in return. Your death for my life. You died for me. I live for you. Now, I know that a lot of us in here are kind of like, whoa, okay, that's pretty hard, but whew, at least I'm good. You know, I, I said the prayer, I did all this stuff, and I go to church like three times a week. I've been baptized. I was confirmed. Uh, I tell other people about Jesus, right? So I'm, I've got to be good to go. Well, Jesus has a warning for you as well. And it's found in the very next verses in Matthew 7, 22 and 23. Look with me if you will. Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, hey, what's that day, everybody? What is that day? Judgment day. On that day, many people will say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, says the Lord, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So here what we see, sadly, is the prototypical second type of spiritually oblivious person. It's defined like this, person two, if you're taking notes. 
This is a person who is full of religious activities, but does not have a saving faith and relationship with Jesus Christ. They do church stuff. They help the needy. They do all sorts of things. I mean, look at these people here. They cast out demons. They prophesied. They did many mighty works. But Jesus didn't know them. Now, when it says, I don't know you, it doesn't mean that God doesn't know who you are, right? God knows everybody. He knows who everyone is. Rather, in the Bible, to know someone is this very intimate thing, right? So you see Adam and Eve, and then Adam, he, he came to know Eve, right? And all throughout the scripture, every time we see this phrase, to know, it doesn't mean know about. It means to intimately, deeply know someone, this doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't know us, who we are. It means that he doesn't know, know us. Let's look at it this way. The Bible describes Jesus as a groom, okay? He's a groom who is in love with a bride and he's going to come and get her. It describes, the Bible describes the church or the true believers in Jesus Christ, true disciples as the bride. So you have Jesus the groom, and you have the church, the bride. And the bride's job is to wait and to prepare for the day that the groom comes to get her. So now imagine if, uh, if, if, with me, if you will, a, a husband and a wife, soon to be married. They're engaged. The husband buys a big, beautiful ring, or the, or the fiance, and he gives it to his wife. And then she's like, this is so awesome. She calls all of her friends and she tells them. She goes to marriage counseling class. She goes to Bible studies about how to be a better wife. She orders the most beautiful wedding dress you've ever seen. She not only that, she buys the coolest flower arrangements that you could possibly get, finds the best chapel in the world, the most expensive, fanciest, ritziest place. And then she has invitations that like glitters and doves come out of when you open them, right? I mean, this lady, she's all in. She has done every single thing to make sure that that wedding goes off. And it's the beautiful, most beautiful wedding of all time. Except there's one problem. The day of the wedding comes and she comes to the groom and she says, hey, look how beautiful all this is. Look at all the stuff I did. Um, I just want you to know, though, there's some other guys that I'm pretty interested in. And uh, I would like this to be an open marriage. How do you think that's going to go? How do you think the groom would feel? Put yourself in that groom's position for a minute. I mean, tears. You know that feeling when your chest just gets tight and it's just anguish? He would look at that bride and he'd say, Who are you? Who are you? I don't even know you. Depart from me, right? Well, friends, that's what Jesus is describing right here in this passage. There's people who they say that they're engaged. I'm engaged to Jesus. I go to church all the time. Sunday school, Christian school. I filled out a card. I raised my hand. I did walk forward. But deep down, they still love their sin. They've got no true commitment to Christ, and most likely, they are a false bride. Let me be clear. You cannot work your way to heaven. That's not what I'm saying. 
No human can be perfect in regards to sin, okay? We all fall short. But Jesus isn't looking for a perfect bride. He's looking for a faithful one. A faithful bride is what he wants. He knows that his bride has shortcomings. He knows. But what really matters to Jesus is this. Are you truly, deeply, and only committed to him? And do you really love him? Jesus could care less about your religious activities. He could care less how many Awana verses you memorized. He could care less if you went to Sunday morning and Sunday night church. He could care less if you went to Wednesday night church. He could care less if you go to youth group or went on a missions trip. Jesus wants your heart. He wants you, all of you, every last bit. When I got engaged to my beautiful wife, Emily, she was like, honey, where, you know, what should we get for invitations? And I was like, I don't care. And then she was like, well, what about the chapel? I'm like, have your way, you know? I'm like a typical dude. I don't care. The only thing I was truly, truly interested and somewhat picky about was I wanted the London broil because that is really good meat, right, at the reception. That's it. Other than that, she could do anything she wanted. I don't even care if, if we got married, you know, at the courthouse. Because what I wanted was her. I didn't need a big fancy wedding. I didn't need all the glitz and the glamour of all that fancy stuff. It was nice. But what I wanted was when I was standing here and I saw her and my heart was beating and the tears were in my eyes, I wanted her. And that's what Jesus says to you today. I don't care about the wedding reception. I don't care about the flowers. He said, I don't care about Sunday school. I don't care about all these other religious activities and vacation Bible school and camp or whatever it is. I want you. I want you. He is a groom and he loves us. See, the world that we live in, it's full of religiousness, but what God wants is our heart, and he wants the whole thing. And if he, if he doesn't have it, who's to say that you're really his bride then? See, so many of us are content to treat Jesus like he's our boyfriend. We can come and go, we can break up, and then ask him back out later, you know, take a break, we need some time apart. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he's coming back for his fully devoted bride, not his eighth grade girlfriend. Okay? So we need to grow up as Christians and examine ourselves and say, am I committed to the Lord Jesus Christ or am I playing some sort of game? You know, as a youth pastor, one of the worst things I have to deal with is this boy likes that girl this week, and then this girl's feelings are now hurt, and he likes another girl. <laughs> it doesn't work that way spiritually. When you get in with Jesus, you get engaged, and you stay engaged, and when you fall, you say, I'm sorry, and you stick with him. You can't play that dating game with Jesus, because if you do, when he comes back, he's not coming for you. It's serious. It's not a game. It's not serial dating. We have to look past the religious activities in our lives that keep us occupied, and we need to ask ourselves this. Do I love Jesus? 
Do I love Jesus? Does he have all of my heart? When the Apostle Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, the very, very last thing that he said was this. He said, I, Paul, write this in my own hand. He who has no love for Jesus, let him be accursed. How many people do you know who claim Jesus Christ as their God, as their Savior, who do not love him? That's the most dangerous place in the world to be, to try to be engaged to someone that you don't love. And most likely, if that's the case, most likely you're probably not really engaged. Now listen, I understand that um, it's, this is a hard message. It's scary, actually. Trust me, I spent a week working on this, two weeks actually. So let me ask you this. How can we actually tell if we are a Christian? I mean, if you're anything like me, you hear this teaching and you're like, dude, this is not good. Like, I am bad. Like, I'm a sinner. I'm a screw up. I know that I make mistakes all the time. We all do. This passage of Scripture is terrifying to me. Let me be clear about this. A profession of faith in Christ without a changed life is a death sentence. A religious life that does not include total devotion to Jesus is a terminal illness. Is this you? Did you say the prayer? But is there no evidence that you're a true disciple? Do you do all this religious stuff but don't even know Jesus? You never talk to him, you never pray, you don't love him? Now what I want to do for the rest of this time is we're going to take the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Beatitudes, okay? So you can turn back to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to look at the Beatitudes as a way for us to have some evidence or assurance that we are Christians. But let me be, let me be very clear about this. There are people in this room right now who are deceived, who think that they're born again but are not. And there are people in this room who are born again, but who struggle with doubt. These Beatitudes, and I'll only get to use four. There's many more, and, and there's an assignment in, the, in your bulletin that would ask you this week to read through the, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and just test yourself and see how you're doing spiritually. So remember, we've been looking at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Now we're going to go back to the beginning. So we just looked at the very last thing that Jesus had to say in his most famous sermon. Now we're going to look at the introduction to Jesus' most famous sermon. And remember, what we're doing is, this is the time, all right, everyone be with me. We are now stepping in front of God's mirror, okay? You now have the opportunity to look at yourself and to see, am I naked like the emperor with new clothes or am I clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, okay? So I'm going to start with the first beatitude, which is Matthew 5, 3. Jesus says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here's the first question I want you to ask while you stand in the mirror. Do you understand that you are spiritually destitute and broke and that your only hope is Christ and Christ alone? See, the first evidence that you are a Christian is that the only hope that you have and that you know that you have is Jesus. It's not good works. It's not uh, words that you say. It's not religious duties or activities or tithing or whatever. It means that when you struggle through life, 
that you don't take all your good works and then your bad works and try to weigh them out and hope that you come out on top. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he means people that say, I am weak, but, but God is strong. You say, I am bad, but God is good. You say, I am wicked sometimes, but God is righteous. You say, I am poor, but Christ has everything I need. If that's you, that's great. That's a great evidence. If that's not you, God is talking to you right now. He's talking to you right now. Second beatitude, Matthew 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You know, when I was a kid, I remember reading that and I just really didn't understand. Like, blessed are those who mourn? Like, so if I'm a Christian, am I supposed to go around crying and stuff all the time? Well, kind of. Let me explain it like this. Um, a couple weeks ago, some, some brothers here who I really trust, good guys, good, solid Christian men, they came to me and they were kind of like, so we've been noticing there's this thing that you do. And we, I don't think you do it on purpose, but you do this thing. And uh, we think it's sin. And at first I was like, nah, that's just me, you know? You guys know this part. Ah, that's just the way I am. And they're like, no, no, we, we think it's sin. And I just remember all of a sudden this just literally awful feeling coming over me. Came home and I was wrecked for like a week because I realized like I have been sinning doing this thing that's been hurting other people's feelings without knowing it for probably years. It's just one of those things, right? You know what I was doing? I was mourning. I was mourning over the fact that I sinned. So ask yourself this question. Stand in front of God's mirror and say, all right, God, when I sin, how do I feel about it? When I sin, how do I feel about it? Is it like, oh, it's no big deal. <laughs> That's just the way that I am. You know, God made me this way. Are you wrecked, devastated? See, the second evidence that you're a real Christian is that over time you begin to hate sin and when you actually do sin, it messes you up. It wrecks you. It puts you down on your face saying, oh God, forgive me. I'm so sorry. I hurt that person. Whatever it may be, oh, forgive me. Have mercy on a sinner like me. That's what it says. That's what Jesus means when he says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. So remember, Christians aren't perfect, but Christians fight against sin and they hate sin. So is that you this morning? Is that you? When you sin, does it wreck you? Or when you sin, does it just roll off your back? Because if it does, just roll off your back. That's a major concern. Beatitude number three, I'm skipping down to Matthew 5, 6. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. So here's the third question we ask ourselves today in front of the mirror of God's word. What does your heart hunger for? What do you desire the most? Is it money? Is it power? Is it respect? Is it physical satisfaction? What drives your life? See, the third evidence that you're a real Christian is that above all else, your real hunger and the driving force for your life becomes a desire for God and His will. 
Now listen, I realize that this is hard and I realize that all of us fall short on this. Uh, Last time I actually preached on Sunday morning, I preached on idolatry and I know how easy that is, okay? But here's the way you look at it. I got introduced to Christ here and my interest in Christ was here. I've been a Christian for 10 years now. Has my trajectory been going up? Do I find myself more interested in God? Am I more interested in his will, more interested in his righteousness? Or am I flatlined? (laughs) Because if you're flatlined, you're probably spiritually dead. As you grow in Christ, your desire for God will grow and you will hunger and thirst for righteousness. What are you chasing right now? If you're engaged to Jesus, you better be chasing him, not something else. And this is a time for us as Christians, as non-believers, whatever. This is that time where we say, all right, no more games, man. I got to get on this. I got to do this. I got to follow Jesus. I want my hunger and my thirst to be for him, for his righteousness, for his will in my life. Do you have a growing desire for God and his righteousness? Is that you? And then the final one. I'm going to use Matthew 5, 7. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. Here's the fourth question I want you to ask yourself. When you look at the world and the lost and those around you, does it break your heart? Does it break your heart? Or do you look at the world and think, oh, these sinners, all these dumb politicians, all that stupid country or all this different ethnic group or whatever and all that co-worker, he's got a speck in his eye. In the meantime, you're walking around with Mr. Plank Eye over here, you know, judging everybody. Or are you full of mercy towards those people? Are you full of mercy? See, the fourth evidence that you can tell that you're a real Christian is that you begin over time, to have the heart and the eyes of Jesus Christ. See, you realize that, like, apart from God's grace, I would be that guy, right? If Jesus hadn't rescued me, I would be the terrorist. I would be the mugger. I would be the guy who I hate at work. That would be me. But instead, God came, he took me, he cleansed me, he saved me, he bought me, and now I need to give them mercy. God mercied us. We need to mercy other people. And if you're walking around and you're doing religious stuff all the time and you're always full of anger and judgmental spirit towards everyone else, you should be concerned because that is not the heart of Christ. And Jesus said, blessed are those who are merciful for they will be shown mercy. We all realize as we grow that apart from the grace of God, we would be just like everybody else. Now I realize I realize that this is an incredibly difficult message. Um, It's tough. It's hard. But it's true. And these are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. I understand that as Christians we can't be perfect, that we can't fulfill God's will in our life perfectly all the time. But there are evidences that can show us that we are true believers that we are saved, and over time, those evidences grow. What you need to know today 
is that the fact that you're here and you're breathing shows you that God loves you very much, whether you're in his grace or not. He loves you, but he also loves you enough to not let you leave here today being falsely, uh, having a false belief that I'm good to go. I'm good to go. That's not what Jesus wants. And I know right now that the Holy Spirit is speaking to many of you, saying in your heart, like, you're like, man, I don't know, this might be me. This might be me. Today is the day to stop playing games. Stop dating Jesus and put on the ring and give him your heart. No more Jesus is my boyfriend. This is the day. God is calling you right now. It doesn't matter if your dad is a pastor. It doesn't matter what you said when you were four. It, those things don't matter. What, what matters is this. Today does Jesus have my heart and all of it. Because if he doesn't, you should leave here worried. You should. And that's what Jesus was trying to say. There's only two roads. There's one road that's easy and it leads to death. And there's another road that's hard and it leads to life. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to eternal life and only a few find it. And I know some of you guys are saying, Aaron, this is a pretty narrow message and I'm saying, yeah, it is. It is. Now you guys may remember good Sunday school people that we are. Who remembers the song? The wise man built his house upon the rock. Remember that? And the house on the rock stood firm, right? Remember that? The house on the sand went splat, right? Do you guys know what that song is about? Interestingly enough, that song basically references this passage. Because if you look in your Bible right now, it's the very next thing. It's the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus just got done telling us, you got to make me your Lord. <laughs> you want me to be your Savior, make me your Lord. Give me your life. And then Jesus said this, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, now here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a little exercise. I'm going to ask you, if you heard these words today, then you are going to repeat loudly back to me, yes, okay? Did you hear these words today? Yes. yes. Okay, so now I'm, we're off the hook. Now it's, now it's between you and Jesus, all right? Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came the streams rose, the winds blew, and they beat against the house, yet it did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words, and we all heard them today, and does not put them into practice is a fool. And he's a man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew. They beat against the house, and the house fell with a great crash. Basically, you have two decisions. One decision, two answers. <laughs> Everyone in here heard these words today. 
This is Jesus. This is Jesus speaking to you. You have two choices. One, go about business as usual and test your odds. Or two, put these words into practice and make sure your foundation is built on the rock. On the rock. You know what? When it says that the wind and the rain and the waves and every, the, the flood rises, that's true, isn't it? Life is hard. It's not a cakewalk. And if you want to make sure that on that day, when you stand before him, that you will be standing, you need to make Jesus Christ your Lord. In Jesus' day, there were only a few people who had that title. Governor, Caesar, slave owner, not my buddy, not my boyfriend, none of that. His death for your life. Quit playing games with Jesus. Quit dating him. Quit texting him or whatever you guys do when you date. This is serious. This is serious. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to have an opportunity in just a moment to sing our praises unto God. And for those of you who you hear these words and they're the words of life and they're the words of sweetness and the words of assurance, you sing your heart out to God and you say, God, I run to you. I run to you alone. I am poor. You said, blessed am I because I am poor in spirit and I know I need you. And if you're in here and right now you don't have the warm feeling inside, you need to talk to somebody. You need to stop playing games with God and you need to make him your Lord. You need to put down the sin and you need to pick up your cross. Today is the day. Jesus wants you. Remember what I told you about that wedding, right? I'm there. I'm walking. I'm in the chapel. I don't care about the flowers. I don't care about the candles. I don't care about the people. I wanted her. And Jesus Christ wants you. He just wants your heart. And so today, stop playing games and give your total heart to Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. Lord, take this word. You said it will not return void, God, and I pray that you would not take it, Lord, and you would use it as a hammer to smash a stone heart, as a healing salve, Lord, to put on those who are wounded and broken, and that, God, the people here at this church, even good believers, that we would just wake up, Lord, and make sure that we're walking right. You are good, God, and you are forgiving, and we thank you for that. And now, Lord, we're going to praise your name. We're going to stand up, and we're going to lift up a shout of praise to you because you are good. You are good. We love you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.